Friday, we celebrated, you know, the, it's the 10 year anniversary of the company, right? And then uh, the daytime event, as you know, was like uh, skeet shooting or, or clay pigeon shooting, whatever, which I've, yeah. I've never done before. I go up, bam, nail the first fucking shot, blow this clay <laughs> pigeon out of the sky. Next shot, bam. And again, bam, hit three in a row. I've never even touched the shotgun before. And we're shooting this place, a new location. So this is the final station. So there's like, let's say 11 out of the 17 finalists hit their shots. And I go to round two and our, our CEO is like, we got to move this along. So he says, let's do two at once. Everybody can get one, usually like the second one or something. I go up, I shoot. I, you know, I figure I missed the first one. I can't even see it. I'm trying to find the second one. I hit that one. Thank gosh. And I got off and everyone's cheering. Turns out I clipped like the, the corner of the first one. So I actually hit both. And the only other person to do that is a guy named Dano or long loving, like uh, an IT guy. We love. looks like a Viking. One of the coolest guys I've ever met in the world. Um, And so it's just me and him in the finals and I have to go first. And this time they're like, we're firing two in the air at the same time. (laughs) I'm like, what? They both go up, bam, bam. I nailed them both. The place goes wild. And there's like 150 people watching me and Dano goes up and misses both. So here you go. (laughs) Your boy, first time shooter is the champion, a real life Hawkeye. That's pretty that's Wait, story. Like, just knowing how much fucking Call of Duty you played, am I supposed to be, like, impressed by this? Welcome to Podcast X episode 13. I am Ben Kendrick. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Keys. Hello, friends. And special guest, Kofi Outlaw. Hello there. I realized that, like, you know, we've been doing this for like a decade now, right? These podcasts. And one thing I realized is somewhere along the line, I just started saying like Mr. Rob Keys for some weird ass reason. And it's like how I've introduced you for a decade. I realize there's like no rhyme or reason because I don't think it was like I ever was like Mr. Rob Keys and Mr. Kofi Outlaw. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't. Even, I don't even think about it now. I guess I'm just. It's just used to it, you know. Yeah, I feel like it's only your name that I do that to. I guess you know, Screen Run Underground listeners, prove me wrong if uh, if it turned out that it was just like a bit that I did a while back or something, but um, where I did it for everybody's name, but. I, th- I think it's a special little uh, little love note to you, Rob. I think. Oh, you thanks, man. Um, all right. Well, this has been kind of a loony week for the three of us as uh, as these as these podcasts have continued to go. But we're here Monday recording. We got ourselves together. Um, but since then, Rob's been like traveled up to Montreal to the home office for an anniversary party. Kofi's family's fighting off uh, fighting off the the Rona. I don't know if you want to me to even say this or not but go, no it's all good no, yeah no 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 i'm fighting off the rona uh, my family is and uh yeah my son's school got closed for lack of staff and tomorrow's Jesus. my birthday so uh yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting birthday tomorrow so this is not yeah. gonna be a sober podcast uh, i'm just gonna yeah. say that right up front he's gonna he's gonna let that, you need to go off. elsewhere what are you yeah. drinking yeah. Uh, right now, I mean, right now it's just a. I went back to a classic, just lime margarita that I made. You okay. know, three ingredients, just the, the real stuff. If you know, you know, three ingredients. 
classic lime margarita because uh you know you know why not fuck it i took a day off you tomorrow because you know me and my therapist decided you know i should make myself happy and so i was like i'm gonna take off for tomorrow and it's my birthday and then yeah. my son's school got closed my wife has corona and like yeah so i'll just be yeah. running around you know with a child all day instead <laughs> so you know that's what it is so what yeah one of these days, I, so maybe maybe therapists don't know shit because maybe I was right to be cynical. <laughs> like maybe yeah, therapists are just bullshit because I feel yeah, like I had it right first. I was just like fuck all this, and then they were like, "Dude, that's not an attitude to have." And I was like, "You know what? You're right." But it'd be more hopeful this year, and I'm going to do stuff for myself. And now I'm just like, "Fuck it, fuck all this." Yeah, you should have <laughs> so, just gone to work. At least at work, you could have just like you know hung out or something. No, I, if I had gone to work, I'd be. Get, I, I'm doing what I always do. I'm narrowly avoiding disaster because <laughs> I did take off work. And if I hadn't, I'd be trying to be on my birthday working and taking care of a kid. So that would yeah, be oh, true. That's yeah, a fair point. So like, yeah, I just narrowly Forrest Gump stepped my way through disaster. So yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a sober podcast and it's going to maybe get realer than you. Some of you are prepared for, but I'm just a special guest here. So, you know, how, how it goes. <laughs> so well, we're glad to as, have you, Kofi. I hope you have a great birthday tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. As yeah. you as you listen to this, make sure to uh, it'll be up on Kofi's birthday. So make sure you wish him a happy birthday. One of these well, days, I'll be 41. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm already yeah. done. It's already over. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, oh it's God. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I crossed that uh I grew that threshold in April, that last April. Um one of these days I gotta get you to drink the drink that I used to make in college that I made up. Because little known fact about me, and I don't know if you guys even know this, I went to bartending school in college. What? You don't even so drink. Like, yeah, I know. One eight hundred bartend. I did that whole thing. Like, um, I don't know if Kofi remembers those commercials or not, but there was this like it was like this, it was just like a week long course you could take to like learn how to bartend. And I did that and never did anything with it except I created, and I'm sure this drink is an actual drink that I thought I created, um, a drink that I just basically like every time people would come over and like party at my house, I would make them and it tasted really good and like girls liked it. So it was, that was the only thing I got out of, uh, out of the money that I invested in bartending school, but I hate to break it to you, but, uh, you were far from the first person to invent the Spanish fly, Ben. (laughs) I don't think it was the Spanish fly. Um, yeah, it's a good, like the drink that I made was a, it was a girly drink. It was a, it was a girly drink. Um, all right. So this week. We are going to chat. There was a bit of kind of a update in context to last week's Batgirl cancellation and sort of what the plan for the DCU is that we want to get through. Um, we're going to use that as an opportunity to then sort of slide into talking about Sandman, which, prepare, which premiered this past week on, uh, on Netflix. And then Rob and I are going to talk about Bullet Train because he went and saw it. Kofi has strong feelings to say um, or strong feelings about the director of that film. So uh, we'll let him get what to you're talking about. We'll let, we'll let him get to those get to those later, and then we'll do. A lot of people said they kind of liked our little rapid fire recommendation thing that we did last week. So, um, you know, Rob and Kofi and I've all been watching some other stuff, and so we'll we'll blow through a few things there as well. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to kick it off, I'll hand it to you, Kofi, because you know DC uh, DC Kofi Outlaw. Well, you, as we you know uh, do this. As we do this in the first week of August, I think the real question here is, Ben, why did you dodge the podcast uh, uh, the podcast revisit of put, projects before so, the end of July? 
I know. So I, I, I don't want to know. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to say that I. I've not like. I've not attempted to dodge that. It was just the coronavirus stuff knocked me on my butt. Um, I barely made it through that podcast we did that week. So I still, I still commit to to doing the the uh, the Project X rewatch. Um, I I am excited to talk about it. So I apologize to those of you who were super pumped. So what you say is you had more time than ever to sit back and revisit Project X. <laughs> I, dude, when I, when I had uh, when I had coronavirus that week, for the first like three days, Ashley didn't believe me that that's what it was was uh, because I was testing negative. And so, I mean, she had me like working like a dog around this house, hanging pictures and putting furniture and stuff together. So I didn't have as much downtime as I wish I was. Uh, I think I was entitled to given how, how sick I felt. But um, we'll, we will get to that. We will get to that, I promise. Before the end of August, we'll say that. Oh, my God. Don't put a timestamp on it. <laughs> you heard it here first. This month. <laughs> this month, yeah. Podcast X, Project X, Revisit. You yeah. heard it here first. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. We're coming up um, on the 20th anniversary of Project <laughs> X. Back when Ben was a hearty 52 years old man. But... uh. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, no, seriously. All right. Let's get back to topic here. So this is uh, DC. We were talking in um, last we talked. It was just the dumpster fire of like what had happened to Batgirl and what was going down with all that. Uh, since then, we had the dumpster fire kind of spread. There was some grease that somebody had thrown out in there. And so that caught flame as well. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. We had a whole like investors meeting and a bunch of stuff happened. And, you know, we did the usual dissection. Why Batgirl was canceled. Batgirl's cancellation explained. Each star and director post message. Kevin Feige called up the directors um, to say a deal in Bilal, I believe. Or I'm butchering their name as always. Sorry, guys. Um, I'm going to get this right. I swear to God. Uh, but, uh, you know, Kevin Feige said, you know, it's all good. You know, don't, don't sweat. We love you. Miss Marvel is awesome. Thank you. And, um, you know, it's just been going on, but we got an investor's call and David Zaslav, the new CEO of Warner brothers discovery kind of stepped in front of all this and just was like, here's what's going down. And, you know, here's what we're doing. And basically what he laid out is he didn't feel that DC is kind of competing on the level that it needs to be. They need to be making kind of like big hit films. I think he wants to go for that billion dollar, like as the standard kind of blockbuster movie. Um, he's not down for this. He This wasn't said, this is now me kind of reading between the lines and speculating, but he's not down for this kind of like, let's do every auteurs like little project. He's not down with this kind of Walter Hamada was all about investing and going into debt to build up this streaming library library with things like Batgirl and Batgirl's kind of a keystone example of this. It was a film that was pointed at and the trades all broke down. That was about $90 million. It was not good enough for big enough to be a billion dollar film in theaters, at least according to Zaslav and company. It was $90 million, so putting it out on just streaming was uh, just a huge loss in terms of investment, and it kind of occupied this area that this new CEO does not want to be in, which is these kind of weird budgeted movies and these weird kind of universe plannings with 
you know, on HBO Max or whatever and doing this movie and then a Wonder Twins movie and all this other stuff. He's just like, what? Like, this is not going to make me a billion dollars. Like, I don't want to do this. And like, we're moving away from this. So he kind of is trying to write the ship saying they got a 10 year plan to kind of rival Marvel and they're going to do all these things. And uh, yeah, they're just, I think they're going to, and people have been <clears throat> kind of breaking it down. What can happen? I just did an article today on comicbook.com that was about just what, how to, you know, our 15th, how to fix the DC movie universe article. Cause you know, you got to do those every couple of years. <laughs> and <laughs> based on everything that was said and everything I know from doing this and just everything I've seen in my time doing this, I just, I broke it down to four steps and we'll just kind of go over them. One, you do need a Feige. And we, I think we hammered that out last week. We were all debating and like, what does it mean to get a Kevin Feige? That was this podcast, yeah. right? We did yeah. that here. Yeah. Okay. Yes, uh, I did too many podcasts. Yeah. And, oh no. <laughs> I think I might've been. Yeah. Jim Viscardi was on my podcast this Friday. And so, you know, whenever he's on, we just end up yeah, like arguing with the other for most of the time. But anyway, <laughs> I think it was Jim. I might've been arguing with to say that, he that uh what it means to get a feige is feige is this guy who you know through much trial and error that we covered in in phase one of the marvel cinematic universe learned what it means he had gone from humble like assistant to lauren schuler donner to co-producer in sony to learning how to climb the ladder and then when he got his shot at marvel it wasn't perfect he had to learn in phase one you couldn't bring in these big auteurs like a kenneth Branagh or joe johnston without them wanting to do their thing and like the push pull between all of that got messy, but he had to learn how to where the middle ground was between being friendly towards creatives, but also having like the right kind of people, company men that will follow the larger blueprint orders and make what you want and be able to do it competently and going between the executives and the creatives and handling all that. Feige's kind of learned to be the wizard of Oz of all that. And he's done a good job and he's uniquely singled out for being, you know, really good with the creative people like the actors all love him. And now the directors he works with tend to love him and all that. We don't have all these like Alan Taylor kind of problem or Louis Leterrier, you know, all these old problems don't surface anymore. We don't have directors like running for the door every two seconds and the talent loves him and the executives love him because of how, you know, being the most successful movie producer around right now. So DC needs that and DC needs it even worse than Marvel because, you know, Warner brothers in their executive pool is like a, just a chum pool of sharks. Right. And like, you need somebody who can be tough enough to stand up to that, but also be creative friendly and, and know how to deal with directors and stuff like that. And who to pick, how to pick certain directors that won't because Zack Snyder is great. I mean, for me, somebody who really likes Snyder, but yeah. you're not necessarily going to get a mainstream worldwide global audience billion dollar plus from a Snyder film because he's just too much of an auteur. His, his, his way of making films is too, you know, it, it has a limit to who it's going to appeal to his three hour kind of all slow-mo films. I love that shit. I love it. But like people in mass don't. And so like DC has been playing with that and, they have kind of sometimes fumbled their way into making just general crowd pleasing blockbusters like wonder woman, Aquaman, these things that are actually earning those high banks and making fans happy. Um, 
and they've even have icing on the cake like a Joker, which was like an indie experiment that made a billion plus dollars. So, you know, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility to do, but like they've, you know, it, it's been few and far between films like maybe Wonder Woman and maybe Aquaman that haven't been like executives and producers going to war and cutting up the film into all kinds of weird stuff. So they need a person who can do and stand in that in that breach and, and handle both sides. And for right now, I mean, as crazy it might sound, if we're considering him to be the president of our country, uh, considering him to be, you know, the Kevin Feige of DC, The Rock isn't the craziest idea in the world. The yeah. Rock is an accomplished producer who almost no matter what, no matter if it's like, you know, Skyscraper or Rampage or one of those films like he delivers a crowd-pleasing film that does at least pretty all right right in the block and as a blockbuster movie and generally the rock kind of does well and and really gets bank and delivers crowd pleasers so he knows how to do that he knows what kind of talent to work with he's found out how to work with directors like black adam director what's his name um our boy who just doing black adam hold up hold up hold up internet internet and Oh yeah, internet. All right, here we go. So Black Adam is directed by uh, Juan Cole Serra, you know, yeah. who Juame Cole Serra, who's done like every crazy B movie, like you know, ever. But yeah. House of Wax, Orphan, <laughs> Unknown, all the Liam Neeson Unknown, Nonstop, Run All Night, The Shallows. Um, you know, he also did Jungle Cruise, but we'll we'll skip that. But uh, he he makes those kind of like he's a company man who makes those kind of like, you know, mid budget, good studio films for the most part in genre films. And now he's kind of working with the rock and together they're take making black Adam. It's like when the Russo brothers got their shot after making fucking arrested development and community forever. Like who knew they had a winter soldier in them, but they did. So like the rock knows how to find those kind of people. So it's not a crazy idea. But you need that. All right. That's just number one. Let's go quicker through the rest of these three. Uh, number two, I said you need to set tier goals. One problem with DC is they don't know how to control this. This bad girl thing was a good example. That 90 million price tag should have never. I mean, you got to you got to separate your what your films are into clear tiers. Like you, you have your broadcast stuff like the Arrowverse. You have your streaming tie in content to the films like the HBO Max stuff. And you have your blockbusters set price budget like ranges for all of these things like 100 to 200 million is a blockbuster movie and we're expecting a billion plus from that you know one of these second tier movies or we're not making second tier movies fuck that there's no room for that in the theaters anymore but if you're going to do one of these streaming series or movie or features like you know 50 to 70 million budget right like set it just set it there. And if you're doing a TV shows like the Arrowverse, the lower tier shit, like here's the budget we're going to do for that. Like set those things in place because those will dictate to you. What characters can you use? What can you do? How to be creative? Cause when money gets tight in Hollywood, people get fucking creative. So maybe instead of like having a 90 minute, 90 million background movie that never goes anywhere and gets dumped in the end, we could do a $50 million like, or four or less 40 or less like, you know, series about the question or something that like on HBO Max, that's gritty noir stuff and ties together a whole Batman universe. Like those price points and those frameworks will dictate what you do in terms of character and properties, but it will also keep it controlled. 
so like you know what you're spending and what you're what the expectation for making back is in every single case and if it doesn't do it then you move on you know we're not wasting time and, and we're not wasting money um number three i would say still embrace the variety that's dc's strongest selling point is that marvel has to be all the same cookie cutter baloney sheet you don't i mean marvel tells you they're going to do these different genre blends but like really it's just a marvel product but you know you can have a joker the batman and a flash movie with two different shared universe batman and ben affleck and michael keaton all happening at the same time in dc and that's okay and you shouldn't you shouldn't lose that so still do that and last but not least and this might seem obvious and on the nose but it's the thing that they don't seem to realize make hit fucking movies just make hit movies (laughs) like make hit movies like don't bullshit around with all this weird stuff. Like I love all the DC weird stuff. Like I, I, I love all the, all the bold artistic auteur choices, but get guaranteed people who can make you a hit movie and make fucking hit movies, spend 120, 200 million, but do it on something that is going to make you a billion right now. There's only one DC project in the fucking pipeline that I would say will automatically, I have faith will make good money and possibly a billion and that's black adam right like other than that i i love shazam i do but shazam is going to be a hundred millionaire i don't see any way that shazam ever becomes a billionaire i i see shazam as a hundred millionaire franchise at best and so i love it but like what you're spending on that to get that return like you're never going to take marvel like that you know what i mean but yeah, something I mean, with like Rock and Black Adam, like you maybe can make a billion dollars off that. You'd yeah, off the back it. of yeah, and it's off the back of the Rock's charisma, right? I mean, that's where that's what yeah, the Rock's the Rock. Well, the, and the Rock knows how to make and sell a movie, and he's aiming for that billion dollars. Like he's not aiming for it to be a hundred millionaire all like in little snippets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it is one of the things that we keep kind of coming back to here. It's like you have the most recognizable characters with the Trinity and you know, they just can't seem to kind of come up with a, like a cohesive plan for that in the past. So it does seem highly likely that like that's where they're headed, whether it's through recasting or whether it's, you know, they do bring Cavill back or something and bring Affleck back to do these like shared universe movies and Reeves can go on and do his own, you know, Batman stuff in his corner of the universe. But like, why wouldn't you start there? Like everybody says it's hard to make a good Superman movie. And I guess maybe it is, but these like, it's not impossible. And that is the kind of thing that would draw like a lot of people. If you made a kill, if you made the top gun Maverick of Superman, people would go nuts for that. But it's that, you know, there has been sort of these ought to I, and that, you know, I'm with you. I like the Snyder stuff and I like man of steel a lot, but Love for sure man that of wasn't steel. a movie. One of my favorite superhero movies, but if I'm betting, but if you put me in charge of the DC franchise today, from all the shit I personally have written about Man of Steel being one of the best Superman movies and yeah. why it redefined the character and every all that lovey-dovey shit I've written, I would not for one second right now as an executive, if they put me in Warner Brothers, be like, we're going with a Man of Steel. Not yeah, for a second. For sure. I'd be like, yeah. how do we get back to that Chris, that fucking 1978 Superman that every kid has to go into theater and see? You can believe a man can fly. Like, I'd be like, yeah. how are we getting that money? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going for that. And I'm not doing the nostalgia of Superman Returns or whatever that was. Like, yeah, or, like, yeah no. 
How do we make people feel that original Superman, the movie thing that makes everybody feel like I have to go to the theater to see this. Like you said, that top gun Maverick stuff, like that's the only question worth asking at DC right now. Yeah. And it's all about like who you cast as like the villain for something like a Superman movie. I mean, Superman for sure. It's like, it's a tough character to crack, but if you, you bust out like a brainiac, you know, an amazing version of Brainiac with the ship and the tentacles and like all this stuff and the super genius. That's something that I can believe would, could deliver that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It is, uh, it is still just kind of perplexing. I know we keep sort of going back to all of, you know, some of these same points, but it, it really is perplexing because I mean, Marvel started their thing with the most iconic characters you know, in the Avengers, the Avengers had the characters that everybody knew with the exception of the ones that they couldn't access like Spider-Man at the time, but you had Captain America, you had the Hulk. I mean, Thor was maybe like a little bit kind of yeah, a weird. I'm over here saying I'm mute, but I think it's quite the opposite. I think the I think miraculous thing about the, yeah, I think the miraculous thing about the Avengers was they took these characters that like were C level characters at best, like at the time in the late two thousands, like Iron Man was nobody. Like it was nobody yeah. until Robert Downey Cap and Thor were sort of B tier. Yeah, they were B. No, Thor was definitely C tier. Iron Man was like CB. Captain America's like B because he sells merchandise, not because yeah, anybody the, knows about Steve Rogers, but like. Yeah, the yeah. big name they had was Hulk, and that Hulk, wasn't even there. Yeah. So it was Universal's. <laughs> yep. And Hawkeye yeah. and Black Widow. Who the fuck were they? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, the, but I feel like the four that had their solo movies, like people know those characters really well. Like, maybe outside of the, not, no, not, right? Bro, bro. Yeah, nobody, but those are ones that they don't nobody, have access to. I mean, I was that's a lifelong the Marvel theater. I was a lifelong Marvel reader, and you know how many Thor comics I picked up? I could count them on a single hand. How many? Oh, times I'm sure. Like, yeah, I'm sure. But like, I mean, what other characters did they have access? Because you can't say X Men or Spider Man and stuff, right? So like, or no, no. Fantastic those Four. Were the, and, and, and those were the mo- major merchandisers. Like the biggest merchandisers yeah. at Marvel is Spider Man. Oh, and then just just take a breath because everybody else is like a long fucking way seven away steps down. Yeah, yeah, and then it's like Captain America because obviously because of all the Americana yeah. shit, and then not yeah. shit, but I'm sorry, America, but all the America Americana stuff. Um, not because of Steve, like nobody's like rocking, you know, Super Soldier Serum syringe tattoos. It's just they know Cap's symbol and his shield and all that, and it's an American flag. So you got that. Um, then you have like, yeah, Hulk is just a thing because people know because he's either cute or he's just a great thing for people spazzing out or gym bros. So he's easily relatable as a concept. And then you have uh, like X-Men being like a real famous thing. And then, of course, like, again, you get into pure merchandising and then it's like Punisher, right? Because Punisher, every fucking biker in, you know, douche cop has to have a Punisher thing. So yeah, there you go, and yeah, that's what Marvel had. It's yeah. it was fortuitous when Marvel started back then because you got to remember from that early aughts, post coming out of bankruptcy and all the weird splitting of rights, up until oh eight, I guess oh six when they first started coming to Comic Con and presenting ideas for like Ant Man. They even had Iron Fist set up somewhere. You know, you know what I mean? They're just trying to get yeah. anyone off the ground, and it was a ragtag group of people, which Kobe explained with Feige and Victoria Alonso and Axel, you know, complete nobodies. A ragtag group, not playing by the rules, outside financing. You know, they, this is pre Disney, uh, and they had characters that have no expectations. You know what I mean? 
Uh, and of course, there's all the well-publicized documentation about Tom Cruise almost played Iron Man. And nah, John Favreau got his way and brought back RDJ, who, again, nobody has expectations for. He's on the blacklist in Hollywood. And that worked in their favor at that time because Warner Brothers was not hitting home runs with Superman. And they were on the way out, uh, you know, or halfway through the, the Nolan universe. And he left one movie later, right? So it, it worked in their favor not having big-name characters. I think Superman is hard because – you just tied to so much expectations. And now more than ever with social media, everyone has their own love, hate relationship. Is it Kabil? Is it somebody new? No matter what your path, people are going to be pissed, right? You know what I mean? So it's, it's very tough, but uh, I think Kofi hit a lot of interesting points. I have a lot of thoughts on all of this, but one thing that stuck out from what Kofi said is the idea of like, you need big hits from the studio front, right? And that's, your big franchise things, that's your DC things, but it's also like your new line things where it's like you can do your your creeds and your, and your horror movies that don't need a massive budget. They just have to be quality and they have to bank. It's ROI, small investments, big returns, but not billion-dollar returns, a couple hundred million. Um, but you're right, and, the, and these temples, they need the big hits and they got to fix this shit, not just with DC, but like – this is what we talked about last week, but the reputation on the creator side of the industry, they lost Christopher Nolan. That guy only makes mega hits, right? No matter what, like Oppenheimer is half a billion, no matter what, because it's just the marketing and who's involved. Right. Uh, and if it's, if it's a good word of mouth, it's hitting seven fifty. You know what I mean? So they burned a lot of bridges with what they're doing and what they're still doing. So how they come out of this and make quality movies and, toe the line between guaranteeing these safe hits, but also <laughs> having notable filmmakers be allowed to make things. I don't know. It's tough, but also it's, I'm so curious what discoveries plan is in all of this with, with Marvel Disney. It's very clear. The studio shit is only 10 or 11% of their business, right? It's theme parks. It's affiliate revenue from old content. And now with the Disney plus, it's like straight to consumer shit. So it's like these movies a billion or not have so many extra layers of financing because you have just infinite licensing money and merch everywhere. And it's all going to feed the theme parks, right? Discovery doesn't do theme parks, right? They discovery has all their money through international and us, just TV content everywhere, like reality TV, fucking everywhere, free TV everywhere. They just have money and cash flow because that shit works internationally and here. Um, Warner Brothers is a very different system. You know, they, when they make Peacemaker and HBO, you know, people aren't going to the Walmart and buying fucking Vigilante and White Dragon kids' toys. That's not a thing. So the revenue model is so different. They're like required to make it up on the box office and on the streaming services. And that's the topic we're talking about now where it's so uncertain. These movies may not make money. Uh, I don't know if Shazam and Black Adam are going to bank well. I, I, I don't. I mean, I mean, if, if Black Adam hits that Jumanji tone – and that word of mouth, then you're going to get good money. But like Kofi's totally right about Shazam. That can be a great, awesome family movie, but that's not going more than 400. Like the first one was awesome, I thought, but you know, it was not a global blockbuster. It doesn't need to be either. But but you know, maybe it does for Warner Brothers Discovery because they don't have all these extra layers of revenue models that Disney has. And like Disney is such a factory made system where it's like every week is tied to a merch drop, which is tied to the following merch drop and the licensing deal and the following content, which all feeds into the theme parks and this and that, that is not how WBD or any other studio works. So, um, I'm very curious when this all shakes out, like what the hell they're actually going to do with DC, whether they can continue this hybrid, continue separate franchises or reboot or whatever. And, um, when they say 10 year plan, 
that drives me crazy. Like, show me what the 10-year plan is or stop talking about it, right? So, uh, they had, there was a great meme going around that I retweeted that it was like with Dr. Manhattan just like sitting on Mars or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like DC has a 10-year plan and then it shows like another shot of him. DC announces 10-year plan. DC announces 10-year plan. Yeah, it's every every ten years of a date. Yeah, yeah. Let's remind me. I got to add something to this stupid article. I forgot. Oh my god, which was don't say it unless you actually are going to make it. Like don't say shit unless you actually are going to make it. Oh man, I can't believe I left that one out. I mean, that was you know, I knew I had a blueprint somewhere for this thing. All right, that's the most true though. We talked about that before. It's like I remember in the middle of like a flight when they dropped out, you guys were, you know, you guys were writing all this up because I was traveling back from a set. 2014, my man. Yeah. Where they were just like, we're going to do cyborg. We're going to do the flash. We're going to do this. And it was like, why are you announcing all this? Flash and and cyborg. Yeah. It was crazy. That was like, it was like, like no one asked you about this. Like, why are you telling us this? And then none of that happened, but, um, okay. Well, you want to switch, should we switch gears? Yeah. Or is there more we wanted to talk about there? Well, no, I mean, I think the DC people have gotten to my mind. They sent the Dream Lord in here, and now I'm swatting my mic off the table. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, you were, uh, DC was like, stop, stop talking about all the stuff we didn't do. Talk about this cool new thing that we actually managed to pull off. So, yeah, so I told you guys, like, I am... Um, like a fan of the Sandman series. So I'm excited to check this out. I haven't yet because I watched Prey the other night um, because you guys were so hyped about it and I was finishing For All Mankind and Westworld. So I haven't I haven't sat down to watch this yet, but I am interested to hear what you guys think about it and I may have some questions along the way um, from my, my reader experience. So um, Kobe let us off in the last one. So Rob, do you want to start off on this one? Yeah, I can't. I'll be brief. I've only seen two and a half episodes. Um, I was away last week and, and over the weekend, but I, I, I did want to see this as this is one of the big streaming war entries, the, the Netflix part of it. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. The first two episodes was tough for me to get get into, and and I'll preface this by saying I and I mentioned this before on Podcast X. I'm not too familiar with the Sandman. I did not read the Neil neil gaiman and books and I've, I've not listened to the the audio podcast or anything like that so this is all new to me um and as someone that's not familiar with any of these any of these uh these stories but certainly familiar with the lore and some of the characters um it, it was slow going for me um i do appreciate though and love that they're really going for it with the lore and the concepts and certainly the outlandish visuals uh but that's also working to its detriment for me i find the show quite ugly um, I know there's a well-publicized uh, conversation about the aspect ratio choices where they're sort of squeezing the frame horizontally in, in a lot of this and, um, to a make lot them of the show. and wayfish like the comic, yeah. It's yeah. weird. There's, there's, there's two versions of this. One where he, like, he pans up, especially in the dream world. Uh, the Sandman's like land his realm, um, and it's like it's a fisheye look, and it looks up, and it's all like CG. You tell it's CG, but it's kind of neat. I get it. It's it's very like fantastical, right? The other part of it is in normal frame. It's 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 squeezed horizontally, um, and it just makes them squished. And for me, fifteen years in this industry, doing images and yelling at people for not, you know, cropping their images correctly, it just drives me crazy. I can't handle it, and it's inconsistent. On top of that, there's you know there's there's a lot of visual effects required for the show, and a lot of it, it looks on the on the 
not a lot of it, but notable parts of it look on the on the cheaper end. Um, and I find it blurry at times. And then, and then the color choices look like something out of a straight to video Frank Grillo or Liam Neeson film. And I love those movies, but but like this is I don't know. I it's I'm piling on it a little bit because it's just not working for me. And the biggest reason it's not working for me is because as someone doesn't know these characters, it really is jumping from episode to episode, even act and to act within episodes between different storylines. And so it's kind of hard to get get in with it uh, until, and I will say this to end on a higher note, episode three, which I've not finished yet. This is when the Sandman, not, no spoilers, but this is when the Sandman's like actually trying to, you know, get his artifacts back, his helm and his ruby and such. And it's, it's interesting because you're actually getting to see this character. Whereas in, in the first episodes, he's very stationary for story reasons and, and not doing much, not given a chance to speak at all or emote and do anything. Um, once that gets going, I, I'm, I'm more interested now. And we meet the Joanna Constantine, not Constantine, Constantine uh, character. And now I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, I, I'm very curious. And the more I think about the show, and this is the, the biggest note, uh, more than any of the other like 6,000 shows I feel like we've talked about or watched in the last couple of months, this show makes me think. I'm always thinking about it because it's so it's so wild and it's interesting. So that alone has me curious to go back, finish episode three, and, and I'll keep sticking with it. But the first two, it, it, was, it was hard. And I'll say one more thing. They cast Patton Oswalt as the Raven in this show. An episode three, and I think that was a huge mistake. Um, and I love me some Patton Oswalt, stand up and acting, he's very talented. Let him voice Modox in season two if Hulu can green light that. But holy shit, stop letting him play the same character in every other voice role. He is the exact same dude as his Raven, he's the exact same dude as Pip in the MCU. I'm sick of it, it ruins it, pulls me out of the show. So sorry, Patton, I love you, but god damn it. Um, yeah, anyways, it's not working for me that much, but I'm very intrigued and I'll stick with it. So, uh, Kofi, I think you're far deeper in than I, right? um i'm on uh i just finished episode five so i'm halfway through it um i'm kind of the opposite of you i recognize everything you said about all the stylistic things i think like everything produced in the last couple years there are some real kind of rougher green screen type deals that we have to see in Mm -hmm. this in visual effects but um it doesn't ruin it for me at all um i i'm not a fan of the comic uh, i've made it i've hinted that i i have some beefs with neil gaiman both from the screen rant days because of beef that started on the site and just uh not enjoying I, I don't enjoy some of his novels but i never read the sandman comic but um i so i was very highly curious about the series to see just if nothing else like how i would feel about it and i gotta say like i'm really enjoying it and i think it's because I think what Rob kind of said, the one good note that he gave in that whole pile of just trash, trash in it was uh, <laughs> that it makes you think. And I like good kind of sci-fi fantasy stuff. I'm a sucker for that. And this does make you think. Um, I'm not a person who minds that they've cut a bunch of DC ties. I can see exactly where it would have tied back to more DC lore. It's not hard to figure out if you know anything about DC lore and Sandman's role in it. Um but I get like kind of how this series works. And I think it, it depends on how you kind of come at it. Like one of my favorite series of the last few years was Lovecraft, Lovecraft country. And this series kind of reminds me of Lovecraft country oh, yeah. in a big way. I love Lovecraft country. That was yeah. Great. So good. And this kind of reminds me of it in that Lovecraft country is very episodic while also, kind of telling this bigger lore and i had to somebody who tried to take on a lovecraft country explained feature that became like 
3000 words of just like going down rabbit holes about what it all like meant together. Um, it, it actually did make sense together, but um, it, it was, it was really even a better show when you looked at it all kind of stitched together. But I mean, even that had like some rough parts and anything. And like I said, I like this show because it reminds me of that, but I like the episodicness of it. I, I was surprised because Netflix, sometimes I just glaze over with the binge watch model, like how one serialized thing just kind of flows into another. You begin to forget things. But like, I remember distinctly each episode of Sandman and like what it was. And I found the first episode while I agree, like there is not much that happens. It's very much a talkie. Um, you know, Rob's not wrong about that, but uh, I found it very intriguing the way it kind of gets into the story by essentially taking away the central character and making you kind of just look at him and be mystified about who this character is and what it actually he does. But um, I like the episodicness and the kind of stories they're telling around him where dream is obviously just a metaphor and, you know, he is a person, but it's, it's the concept and the real story is how this metaphor functions with these human characters. Right. I think I'm, I'm interested to see what happens when Rob gets to uh, episode five, which is wildly different. Um, it, it, it's, it, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a wildly different episode and it's kind of very much a standalone episode. And I'm kind of interested to see how you feel about it because it very much embodies what I'm talking about here and really hammers home. Like these are metaphors, right? Like these, mm -hmm. these concepts, dream, despair, destiny, you know, death, these, the endless. And so it's really about how they affect the human world. And that's kind of the real story of it. And so I got that from the first episode because it was about how, what happens to this man who tries to trap this, you know, God-like being. And that represents this very fundamental aspect of human existence in this bubble. And that was kind of the story. Um, so I, I'm enjoying it and it's making me want to actually go out and read the comic very much after this and, and see what happens when Sandman's plugged into like DC lore fully. But um, yeah, uh, I got a major crush on Joanna Constantine and like, yeah, I know that's not going to go anywhere, but uh, you like, I don't mind those changes. Like that's a great change. And like, she's a great character in this and there's some other great characters and the actors are all really well done. Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer Morningstar is that's a great episode. And just each episode just does something kind of like Lovecraft country in some sci-fi or fantasy way. And they're all kind of different in a way that I really enjoy it. And I'm just excited to see a new episode. It's not just another continuation. Like I said, episode five, I was watching in the middle of the night and I was just like, I got to stop because this is like a whole new episode. I was just trying to binge cause I couldn't sleep, but I was like, no, this is like a whole new thing. And I like, I got to just sit down and watch this like its own little movie. Right. And so, um, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And I know how long this has been in development limbo and I can see why it's such a weird thing to try to adapt. And like, I don't even know if you could have done this in a pre Lovecraft country world because Lovecraft country broke a lot of barriers to just getting people into just watching something truly weird and just being like, I don't know, but this is kind of cool. And I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So. It makes a lot of sense. I'm excited that you guys are at least like dipping your toe in it because like, you know, for all your beef with, with Neil Gaiman and stuff from the, from the SR days and everything, like <laughs> this is the kind of thing that, you know, I mean, he also did like American gods. He's done, 
You know, okay. I wanted. I did want to bring that up. This reminds me. I've not seen Lovecraft uh, Country, but I know that there was um, a lot of uproar that didn't give it a season two, um, especially yeah. with that cast, which is a shame. But uh, with American Gods, this reminded me of that in big time. Um, except American Gods for me, while it had cool characters and beautiful visuals, that is a high production show. I wish Sandman looked like American Gods visually, but American Gods lost me because I didn't care and they didn't do a good job of having any through line. And nothing they did mattered. They were just in places yeah. talking all the time. This show, I'm actually there is a hook. I'm like, I actually really want to see him go episode to episode doing these things. So that is the big advantage um, with having this version of an ensemble versus that one with big iconic characters. But sorry, Ben, I, I cut you off there. No, I mean, I'm just excited you guys are dipping your toes into it because it is interesting too the way that this character is kind of plugged into like DC comic mythology in the in the comics like obviously i haven't seen the show yet so i don't know you know it they've definitely changed some things um to separate it but um you know if this ends up being something that you get interested in kofi i'll be curious what you think of the of this you know the books because they're you know it is kind of funny seeing like john constantine and stuff like moving in and out of these things and and stuff like that but um as like a book reader, like the changes don't really bother me either. I mean, that's always been kind of my thing is, you know, like change whatever you need to in order to tell the story that you're going to tell. And so if changing some of this stuff, you know, is a better showcase and a better kind of frame for telling the Sandman story, which is definitely a, you know, you're talking about American gods and we're talking about Lovecraft country and stuff. It's very in those, in those veins where it's very wacky. It's very out there. There's a lot of kind of, like living metaphor characters and and stuff like that. Um, Whatever you need to do to kind of control that a bit so that you can tell a cohesive story on Netflix, I think is probably necessary and, you know, and a good change. And, you know, I mean, Jenna Coleman, she was great on Dr. Who. So I'm, I'm excited to check her out in that role. Uh, Ben, I'll say one thing for you. If you are familiar with the books, um, they do a good job of translating some of those like notable iconic visuals from the book uh colors and everything even like weird details like into like very specific frames of the of the show so they, they do a good yeah, job of that cool. like there's a lot of notable references so yeah we appreciate it's a that. beautiful i mean they're beautiful books like the art in them is is genuinely great so it's kind of sad to me that you know you're saying it may not be as visually like striking as it as you well, want or as high production more, value because yeah i just it's the quality thing it just yeah not quite polished enough for me but yeah yeah it's okay the uh yeah, I get it. I'm excited. I really am excited to check it out, though. I kind of it sort of just snuck up on me because it, you know, it sort of landed on Netflix without like a lot of fanfare. Yeah, um, and you know, which I mean, it's weird, right? So it's it's not like you're going to drop Stranger Things. Well, I mean, it, it had like a whole thing at a Comic Con. They had a whole yeah, yeah, for sure. It was just overshadowed by the oh. fantasy shows and their movies and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, but we also should say Tom Sturge is is fucking really good as Dream, like. That guy, that is a tall order to to kind of live up to, and he's doing a great job. Yeah, yeah can you imagine look. Joseph Gordon-Levitt like, oh, like God, no, playing no. that character? <laughs> it's a very different thing. Um, but he does yeah. the voice is the, uh, to me the most impressive. He's got the look down and the way he moves, but like his voice really sells it. I think. Yeah, yeah, he's great. It's a great, it's a great cast. I. I echo what you're saying about Patton Oswalt, though. That was one of the casting when I was, uh, when I saw like whoever was anywhere. It's just kind of like, which again, it's so weird because like I like just like you were saying, I love Patton Oswalt. I love him in 98 percent of the things he's in, but it's man, the way he's been kind of 
pushed into some of these comic characters and almost like typecast as like, you know, the voice actor of these different CGI characters and stuff is like, I don't know. It, it does. Feel I will like say it. he, he grows on me as the ser- I was kind of jostled by that at first too, but he grows on me as the series. I jostled. What did I just say that? Oh man, I've been drinking this too much. <laughs> um, no, but he grew on me as the, uh, as it goes on because there's just a way they started. It got better. Cause when they start talking about how he's not just like a Raven, he was a guy, he was like a living person. That's it. Yeah. Who, and then he becomes a thing. And it makes more sense. And you're like, oh, and he plays it that kind of, he does a good job of kind of playing it that way. Like I was a guy and now I'm just like in this fucked up position of being a Raven for this crazy <laughs> guy. And, and he, and he is a good foil for him because dream is all like out there and like, I've got to do this like a God. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> let's get the fuck out of here. Like, what are you saying? Like, come on just yeah. like and so he's a good foil kind of character and uh yeah he, he kind of you get used to him because like i said there's a lot of obvious scenes where him and and dream just are where they're just playing off each other and it, and it gives okay. us a series like a little comedic bounce that you need and it is he's actually funny because you know the way he plays it with tom sturge is just like like i said dream is so like haughty and dramatic and he's just like oh my god sometimes just like what the fuck <laughs> Love yeah, that. yeah. It is, I should say like I've only seen him in one scene, so it's only one big dialogue exchange. No, the first like, one's rough. Yeah, that first. Yeah, because he's like, I used to have thumbs. Yeah. Now I got wings. Oh, I'm sorry. He's a very nice. It's very Patton Oswalt in Justified yeah. or Patton Oswalt in fucking Parks it's and Rec. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and, and it's a lot of space to clear in the series where you're not where it's all like serious and dramatic up until then. But uh, you know, I'm not going to lie and say like Lovecraft Country had some pretty rough scenes and and but I still loved it. And, and Sam is the yeah. same way. Like I like it even in its flawed parts where I'm just like, yo, that was, I laugh at him. Just like, man, that was rough. But like a little of that, some of that was rough, but overall I enjoy it. And yeah, I mean, and each episode is kind of like, it gets me like in the way Star Trek does, you know what I mean? Like, like Rob said, the way you makes you think like, and it just plays with popular mythology. Like the second episode has a whole Cain and Abel story. That's kind of like, yeah, funny but like sad and kind of messed up too on a sci-fi like mm-hmm. slightly horror level and you're just like in the way that Sandman occupies this weird space between all that stuff I I, I kind of dig it yeah that's cool mm, okay do you want to talk about bullet train a little bit yeah for sure let's, and it's let's my time to relax and listen to you guys talk about uh, a David Leach movie that's not quite as good <laughs> as a Chad Stahelski movie yeah. I, so I want you to uh, I want you to repeat to, for the listeners what you said about about David Lake before David Lee before you. Uh, well, as the popular uh, host of the Comic Book Nation podcast, I say that all directors always are you know just heroes for just being able to accomplish their projects and get them on the screen. Ben, that's what I always say. That said, <laughs> that said. That's it. You're not going to repeat what you said. <laughs> oh man, I you know Ben, I've I'm going to be. It's my birthday. I've been drinking. You know, <laughs> I, I don't remember. <laughs> All right, I'll let you. I'll, I'll let you. Oh, oh, yeah, I remember what I said. Um, looking forward to the Atomic Blonde sequel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's oh, exactly that's what it was. Yeah, that's what yes, you said. That, was, yeah. that is uh, what I said. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I said I. I mean, on the whole, I prefer 
Chad Stahelski. If you don't know, this is all based in the fact that the first John Wick movie was Chad Stahelski and David Leach were both like top, not top tier stunt men um, yeah. and stunt coordinators in the business. Respect to both of them. They, they actually, you know, I think Leach has been like what Brad Pitt's guy for like forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Fight Club and stuff. Yeah, bit. exactly. Yeah. So um, he's like, yeah, yeah. So stunt double, and you know, you know, there's a little bit of that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Because Brad Pitt knows that he's had like uh, again a stunt double guy he's friends with, and and obviously yeah. does stuff with. But anyway, but um, they they've split off after the first John Wick, and they've both taken on different projects, like Leech did Dead, Deadpool Two, Atomic Blonde, and and other stuff, and Stahelski. Uh, uh, stuck with John he? Wick. Yeah, John, he, yeah, he, he did John, John Wick. Wick yeah. Two, yeah. three, and four. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. He did some second unit stuff on Civil War and Birds of Prey, but um like in the in the sort of intervening years. But but uh, uh yeah. So so you prefer the you prefer the Stahelski. You're in the Stahelski camp. Yeah, I mean, he does the kind of, of like, he does the kind of like, mar- I mean, the precision kind of like martial arts, like really choreographed step for step kind of kind of gung fu sequencing where David Leach does the kind of creative action setup, like usually pretty kind of hard hitting, like, you know, people get beat up, his heroes get beat up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a sure. lot in these kind of rough fights that are yeah, almost like it's almost like a, a, a synthesis if you want to get real nerdy about it it's almost like a synthesis of a uh, korean cinema where yeah. where yeah they do that kind of verite like people like old boy hall sequence type stuff like people getting beat up like the cab sequence in what is it john wick two or three the beginning of two is the cab yeah beginning of two is a cab sequence yeah, yeah that like people just getting nailed with cabs and, and having these fights while they're getting slammed with cabs. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. does that stuff. You have a pretty accurate read on the difference between like these two filmmakers. And I will say going I've into been this, doing this for a minute, Ben, I, I, yeah. I've been doing this for a minute. I even maybe studied a few things in school a few times. Yeah, it's fair. It's a very, it's a fair point. The, um, but going into this, um, you know, like I loved, I love John wick. We all love John wick. Um, I liked Atomic Blonde. I was not a fan of Deadpool 2. Um, and Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw was like fine. But um, I think I liked it more than some of the mainline Fast and Furious stuff just because it was kind of different. But I would agree in a lot of ways that I'm not like a huge like David Leach fan in that in that sense. Like, you know, I like the first Deadpool better. I like the, you know, John Wick more than I like some of this other stuff or the John Wick sequels more than I like some of this other stuff. But I did enjoy Bullet Train. You know, I, I teased this last time um, when I was talking briefly about it. Like, it is idiotic and, like, to a degree that is probably unexpected, it's idiotic because it spends a significant amount of the time of the movie, like, really talking about, you know, like, waxing poetic about karma and fate and you know like how to live your best life and things like that and by the end of the movie i mean it's just like you know dead guys are using are are getting used as like punching bags and trains are exploding and you know brad pitt's getting hit in the nuts with like a coffee pot or something so it's like it it kind of abandons everything that it wants to say in favor of sort of a almost like tarantino-esque 
kind of Kill Bill-esque sort of finale where it's like real style over substance in some ways. And I don't mean to say that in the Tarantino doesn't have doesn't have substance, but but like when you think of the style of like a Kill Bill movie, it's like that feels like what what Leech is going for here. And it doesn't it doesn't quite land in terms of all of its themes and all of its motifs and everything that it's setting up. But I did laugh. I thought the fights were fun. I think there's a lot of just like ridiculous surprises. The characters are all in general, in my opinion, like memorable and kind of have fun banter moments. And it's like you just take all these great actors, you know, teach them some really kick ass like fight choreography and throw them in this confined space and you get kind of bullet trade. And for me, it worked, but that was only if I kind of turned my brain off. Um, but I, I just, I did, I really enjoyed it. Everybody that I was with was laughing and, and having a really good time. So um, I kind of understand why there's somewhat of a mixed reaction to it, because I think anybody who's sort of locked into the story and, you know, some of what the movie seemed to be kind of promising in terms of having some kind of message about, you know, fate or karma or something like that, that all gets so abandoned by the end um, that it would, it would seem pretty disorienting, but moment to moment fight to fight. I, I had a good time and I, I really enjoyed it, but I am kind of curious what, you know, you had to say, Rob, I would say just to preface Rob's comments, nothing that Kofi said in terms of criticizing, you know, Leach as a director, I don't think like doesn't hold water here. Like he hasn't, transcended the criticism that that Kofi is sort of putting down here in terms of the difference between, you know, Stahelski and, and Leach, I would say. Um, but Rob, I, you're fresh out of this. You saw it yesterday. Yeah. I have so many thoughts. You guys bring up a lot of interesting points. Um, Hmm. First Leach, uh, actually to go back to the chat and Leach thing, they are best when they are together. Um, and they were true in every sense of the word co-directors on the first John Wick. And the only reason yeah. Leach doesn't have a, a, a directing credit on that is because of the DGA and their absurd rules and lack of protecting their own members, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. well publicized. They had to basically flip a coin. Chad got it. But the, whole, the press, we did a good job covering that. The whole industry knows it didn't affect their careers at all in any negative way. Yeah. And they are still collaborators. The thing with these two guys, um, and you should go back to watching like those stunt videos, well, anything from a company called 8711. They, these guys are still partners. They have an 87 North, I believe it's called, production company, which has made this film, Bullet Train. Um, but they call each other all the time. And, and these guys are like came up through the industry working with Keanu. Uh, Leach, like like Kofi said, was a was a double and, and, a, and, a, and a stunt advisor for Brad Pitt, but also Jeremy Renner. And like, you know, Renner called him up and said, yo, can you come help out with the Bourne Legacy? Uh, David Leach kind of salvaged all the action stuff for the Hansel and Gretel movie, which I actually kind of like that. They already taken. I wish there was a sequel to that. Yeah. But um, these guys together balance off each other very well. They both do the stuff in camera and they both talk to talent and, and, and they are the type of people that love the crew and love the cast. Everybody loves working with them. They get it. Right. Um, what's interesting though, is that over the years, Leach, uh, in interviews, and I've had the chance to interview this guy twice in person, once on the set of the Wolverine in 2013, where he was second unit. And I was on a boat with this guy for an hour in Australia, going to the set. And that's when he's at his best. That's why I think they're great co-directors and I wish they could collaborate more, but they're too famous for that. Um, because like he did all the crazy awesome stuff you got in the Unleashed edition of the Wolverine where there was a bunch of ninjas shooting arrows and pulling Hugh Jackman off a snowplow. Yeah. He was riding a snowplow, was spinning in the snow with his blades out and he threw a fucking motorcycle at somebody. It's like that shit is awesome. 
when done for the action scenes. When you, when you get to the full film, it's a different story. And one thing Leach said in many interviews and uh, recently on, a, on, a, on another podcast, not to plug competitors of any sorts, but there's a Mission Impossible podcast called Light Diffuse. And he was on it like a year ago or something. And one of the things he said, the biggest difference between him and Chad is that Chad likes to do like, takes his time, long, slow shots, blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas Leach generally that's the, wants the whole movie fast, 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 fast pace, right? doesn't mean quick cuts in action. They want to show you in frame what's going on. That's why these you can always clearly see the action so well in these films. They're very well constructed. But generally, Leach tries to do fast, 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 which I find it so weird because in Bullet Train, it is so long unnecessarily. It's like two plus hours for some reason. It is long. It is. Long. I wish they cut 35, 40 minutes out of this thing um, because all, all the criticisms – that Ben kind of alluded to and you've heard online are, are true. Like this, it, it's, it's, it's like a Guy Ritchie wannabe or Guy Ritchie. Ooh, that's a good, yeah, that's a good, uh, right? that's a good comparison for they're sure. They're so playing it. They're playing it so cute and are so full of themselves in the dialogue, right? With the, you know, uh, Tangerine and Lemon talking about yeah, Thomas, yeah. the tank engine and trying to figure out which engine is which character in the movie that never goes away. And that's fine. I like that. But they hold the shot on them and they keep letting them talk and talk and talk in their British accents like it's a Guy Ritchie film, except they don't have that quality of dialogue. And what they're saying isn't as funny or as cool and slick or as interesting as anything you get in those Guy Ritchie films. And we're talking Snatch and Lockstock and Rock and Roll Up, but even like The Man from Uncle, like those movies are very polished. I think Guy Ritchie gets it. Um, this seems like a bad, not a bad, but like a lower tier Guy Ritchie film with more over the top action. And so I, I wish they toned that all down. Get rid of the necessary dialogue. There's some set pieces that don't belong. And not to spoil though, but they're on a train. There's a part where the front of the train that comes, the roof comes off, and it's all just like CGI craziness. And it is it's unnecessary scenes. It's like you don't need the extra shots over and over and over again. And all the stuff that Ben alluded to as well with the themes of talking about fate and karma, it all kind of comes around in the same way, again, a Guy Ritchie film would, where everything's kind of connected. And what a coincidence. And it's like cool but you didn't need the extra 30 minutes of bullshit in between um so the other thing that really holds this movie back is that the lead character is the least interesting and brad pitt in once upon a time i know we had a bit of a discussion about this film and and we were talking about kofi didn't like movies that are based in hollywood and like uh but brad pitt's role was i i think i enjoyed watching him in in uh as a i guess a co-lead or supporting character in once upon a time yeah but in this film as the lead He's playing like a guy who's too young but also too old and he's kind of like this quasi-pacifist, but he's too corny. He's like reacting. Everything is happening. Like it's so crazy. But he's like a lifer. He's an operator, mercenary. He's done all this shit before. It's it's so weird. He's not funny and it, it goes – he's funny at times, but they keep doing it over and over and over again and it's just too much. Um, I kind of wish they went with a, a different character archetype with him. Like speaking of David Leach, a movie he produced is Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. I would much rather have a reluctant, slightly older gentleman who's like confident okay. and has anger. I mean, I was hard on him, but nobody was, nobody was, nobody's tight. I can't, I can't. No, I like you know, nobody. I, That's I what I'm saying. Real. Yeah. Nobody was tight, but I just went in on Leach, but I did like nobody a lot in the kind of style, his style worked I, in that movie. That's what I'm saying. I love nobody. I wish they had an Odenkirk type lead in this movie instead of Brad Pitt's over the top corny character. Um, on the flip side, Aaron Taylor Johnson and, and Brian Terry Henry, like, you know, as much as they overdid their dialogue, when you, when you see those guys in a movie, like they're putting in the work, especially Aaron Taylor Johnson. Like, you know, shit's going to get intense when he's in a movie, yeah. like even his little role of tenant, like I, when he's on screen, he gives it his all. And that shows up here. He, he's sort of like, 
he could have been the lead of this, you know? Um, and when he plays off Brad Pitt, those are some pretty cool friggin' scenes. You've seen a lot of it in the trailers, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, and I would, funny enough, I would watch more like it, of course, but this doesn't need to be seen right away. And it, to me, you know, as, as crazy and over the top, uh, as it is, it doesn't need to be seen on the big screen. Um, and damn, take out 40 minutes. And this is a way cleaner movie for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, and there's some fun cameos too. Well, we don't have to say what they are, but there's some fun, funny. Oh my god, cameos, one of the cameos is amazing. Yeah, like one of the cameos is a. It's not like blink and you'll miss it because they they make a point of of hanging on it for like five seconds. But man, I mean, when you see that cameo in context in the movie, it like it just makes sense because the actor they cast with everything they've heard about this character is just so dead on. Yeah, um, it's great. Like that stuff is really really great. Yeah, positive um, audience reactions to all the cameo stuff. But the one, the cameo on the train that they kept going back to, that oh was hilarious as well. Yeah, so it was hilarious. And also the second time that that person has like been a cameo in a movie where he's like basically just like a walking sex joke. Um, yeah, he's like you know, the new Matt Damon, but all sex jokes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, I was surprised. There, there's, I mean, the cast, the way they've also been like, you know, hyping up the cast and, and everything is sort of interesting because there's a few people that they have featured really heavily in the marketing that are barely in, in the movie. Um, and like, Who? I don't, I guess I don't want to say necessarily like, like Carrie, like Karen Fukunaga is barely in it. Um, oh yeah. And then the other one is, uh, is what? Uh, yeah. What? She's, ba- she's barely in it. No. Oh, yeah. You just, Ooh, you just made this a guaranteed streamer. Yeah, Zazie um, Beats is the other one that's not in it very much. Like they've been marketing. Oh my! So all the girls I'd possibly want to like watch this movie for is yeah, what you just true. said. Well, yeah, Sandra Bullock's even in the less. Kofi's <laughs> old Friday Night Fantasy is not in this. Yeah, so uh, yeah, but, all right. Speaking of Missy's actors, they were not in the marketing enough. But like some of the best characters and like the, the actual serious story stuff comes from um, Andrew Koji and. Um, Hiroyuki Sonata, who, who again yeah, worked with 100%. Leech on the Wolverine. He's like the best swordsman in the world when it comes to actors. Yeah. Um, those two guys are the coolest characters, and you could have made a film just with them and their storyline. Um, but I, I wish the, the first like two acts of the film don't give them enough. Um, but I think they are they, – they put in the work, and they're the most interesting and the most intense, and I wish they had more more screen time. Yeah. I said Karen Fukunaga. I meant Karen Fukuhara. Um, but the uh, – yeah, I mean like – you know, Bad Bunny shows up in this thing and has like this sort of weird like mini story that that plays. There's a lot. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very weird. By the time Michael Shannon shows up, it's like I mean he's kind of fun, but it's it's strange. You have Masioka from freaking Heroes. Um, and like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the train conductor. But the thing that like one of the things I mentioned in the in the actual written review is like this film was criticized for whitewashing the original um, Japanese novel. And I didn't mention this to you before, Rob, but I'm curious of your impressions, because the train itself is full of more fucking white people than like than I've ever seen. And not the assassins like, okay, so there's a reason the assassins are all there. But there's like this old lady that like is like this old white lady. And then the cameo person we were alluding to earlier is like, is like a white dude. And the, if you look at like the background extras and stuff, like a lot of them are just like white people. It's very, very weird. Um, 
you know, outside of the actual just like casting controversy of, of, you know, kind of whitewashing a couple of the the main characters from the book, like why set this movie in Japan still, if you're going to, you know, just like fill the cast with that's, a bunch of white people. Like that's hilarious. Very, very I've actually seen that in like a bunch of reviews of people being like, whether seriously taking offense at it or just like lightly noting, like it's weird to see this train going to this destination with yeah. this many white people on it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. It is really strange. It's really noticeable. Sorry, Ben. Go ahead. Maybe it's just the one they all felt safe on. I know how that happens. Well, it's mostly empty, but the few people you do see who are not the assassins and the internet, the assassin crew like Ben alluded to is very like an international group, but there's a, you know, um, yeah, it is a very international crew mostly, but certainly the, yeah, it's weird. Very strange because there's not many people on the train. The ones you do see who are not the leads are as far as I can remember, certainly the cameos are all white. So that, yeah. and also the over top, over the top, like through line of that, uh, the anime character that keeps popping up everywhere. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. playing on every screen and you see like the mascot, you know, that part of the story, of course. And yeah, it's, um, playing fast and loose with some of those tropes and outside of the, you know, the, the characters I kind of mentioned the, you know, the elder, uh, and the father character and like their, uh, family background like that's the only grounded part in japan so I, yeah but, but yeah it would have made sense almost to make this some other european train and connect that way somehow but um i don't know that that was definitely a strange yeah. creative choice it's very yeah it's all uh it, it is just like a total mess but i still had like i said i still had a lot of fun um you know watching it and stuff minute to minute um but uh anything else you guys want to say yeah one more thing um with the David, not to pile on David Lee's criticism, he's, he's actually, a very, very, I like that guy a lot. But yeah, these movies all kind of have the same problem. Deadpool 2, Hobbs and Shaw, and this one. For, guy, for a guy in a crew that does so much in-action stuff and they trust the actors and they do all this amazing like physical work, it is wild to me that they're doing so many over-the-top, unrealistic things in these films. Like Deadpool 2, you know, it's an exception. You have mutants and stuff like that. But some of the set pieces are so wild and crazy and goofy. And Hobbs and Shaw, you have like the this, this superhuman villain element and you have car scenes and other scenes that are so CGI enhanced and over the top. And he does that in this film as well on a train. We don't need to do that at all. So in the final set piece, like it just goes <laughs> off the rails, so to speak. Um, yeah. And they don't need to do that. <laughs> That's not what works about this movie. Those are the worst part of these films. So I, I would like to see him tone it back and maybe like do, do movies where he doesn't have all these resources because he doesn't need them. You know what I mean? We can see what he did, what these guys did with John Wick one when they didn't have the money. Right. And that's yeah. to me, is still the best John Wick. That's the best work they've done. Um, and, and when they get too much money, they, they, you know, do these uh, set pieces that are hurt. Them I don't know, man. That John Wick three was pretty, pretty slick. Which one? In the library, John Wick three. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I have the library that did all the dogs. That shit's cool for Chad. Um, maybe this is more of a David. Very, yeah. But uh, I love I love that stuff, and that was my favorite part of my one time I've been to CinemaCon because they just showed the dogs and, and she was there, and that was an amazing sequence. But John Wick two and three, they're getting more and more crazy. This is the Chad's Chad's part of the issue, and like even the ending of two or three when he's like, bouncing off all the things and falling down, it's like you don't have to get over the top. You have all this cool in frame stuff. Like stop CGIing the character falling somewhere. Um, yeah, I, I just have a problem because I think they're the quite literally the best like action people on, on the planet. And as soon as they CGI the people or CGI the building or room or scenario yeah. or environment they're in, you're taking That's it true. all away. You t- you take, you're, you're replacing their talent 
with with a VFX house or whatever. And it's like, no, yeah. no, 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 don't do that. So I agree. I genuinely think like the worst parts of this movie happen in the third act, probably, where it's kind of like it it's starting to kind of come undone and it becomes this big sort of explosive thing. And it's like I much preferred the little like one on one fight between like Bad Bunny and Brad Pitt or something, you know, where there's wacky things that happen, but it's still sort of grounded, you know, in a room that's a real room where these guys are, you know, like flipping around and throwing each other and stuff. Um, there's another part of this movie, which I'm not sure if it's in the marketing materials. We haven't talked about it. It's like, there's a lot of flashbacks, especially with lemon and tangerine and how they explain yeah, all the true. fate or coincidences and how things yeah. work together. But Everybody's yeah, there's like with all of these operators or assassins or mercenaries or whatever you want to call them, like when they're explaining like what they've done and how they're connected. And this is the guy from the Berlin job or Bolivia job. Like they actually do quick flashbacks to like, a three second scene of two cars crashing, exploding, or, or a three minute sequence where they've killed X amount of people and they're trying to figure out how many people they've killed at, back then. And it's kind of fun, but it's an example of like they probably threw like $20 million at yeah. what amounts to three and a half minutes flashbacks, which don't really help the film. Um, <laughs> well, and some of them happen a lot of cars. Times. Yeah. yeah, like uh, the Bad Bunny sequence at the wedding. Oh, this kind of is the you know the focus of his origin story. I feel like we see that sequence like four or five times because you. You do see that a couple different of the assassins are there, but it, it also kind of, I think even within just, you know, Bad Bunny story or something, you do see it called back a couple times and it's like, yeah, okay, you, know, you have to like, really explain it to you like, oh, this person yeah. did this. And it's like, well, okay, okay, yeah. you get it. Oh, and this person. <laughs> if you look at David Leach's freaking stunt work though, there is some hilarious shit in here. So like his second credited thing as a, as a stunt person was Orgasmo in 1997 and then Great Basketball in 1998. Yeah, I know these old Matt Stone classics. and Trey Parker movies, man. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but there's the, I mean, there is Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, there is there is Fight Club and stuff, but uh man, like some of their early Corky Romano uh one night at McCool's, like just some of these man, it's like a blast from my college days of and high school days. This, this guy's been at this for so long. But yeah. um he did second unit on both of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Um mm-hmm. like Michael Bay's produced ones. Uh, there's some funny stuff in here. They, but, they bring anyway. these guys in in that crew for any specific sh- – and they also do a lot of – like they, they come in to like consult on a specific thing or a moment. Yeah, like, I think Fight comes in his first roles and he was just like one thing and he was just kind of giving some advice or whatever. But yeah. he does the doubling work for sure. He was a stand-in for a bunch of things. He was standing in some big movie. I forget what it was. What um, an interesting like component of Hollywood that doesn't get like explored a lot. I mean I know – you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, Brad Pitt's a stunt man and stuff. And I know the fall guy is, you know, the mo- next movie that I think David Leach is directing. Yeah. He's going, um, he's scouting right now in Australia. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, maybe there'll be something interesting there, but I feel like, you know, what some of this stunt work is, especially what these guys have done. It is pretty amazing when you think about it, that they just get called up and they're like, okay, we have this crazy sequence. We need you to shoot it or we need you to like you know conceptualize it and these guys just come yeah. in and do it it's kind of cool for, for civil war for example like the, he only came in for a little bit actually him and chad came in on separate days just to help with the some of the close-ups on the so like the airport sequence um, oh, yeah. but because they're all masked and all those scenes they work with the stunt guys to do that kind of stuff so okay. um yeah. 
Yeah, and then for example, they, the Hitman, the second Hitman movie, uh, which was not great uh, with with Rupert Friend, yeah. like they came in to do specifically just the reshoots because they wanted an opening shot sequence that was more exciting after seeing John Wick one. So he came in and just did the thing where he's like going down the stairway and shooting guys and all these, you know what I mean. So it was like a very like a one yeah. week job sort of thing. But they are like the fixers of the Hollywood when you need to get something right in a big set piece. So. Did uh did Neville Dean and Taylor? This is making me flashback to oh, boy, Neville Dean and Taylor a lot. Like oh, <laughs> back in the Crank Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance days, did they oh, just yeah. fall off? Because they were they were sort of similar, right? Like they were doing crazy stunt stuff with their cinematography and everything. Did those guys just like never make a movie again after Ghost Rider? I don't know, man. Uh, no, they kind crank. of they largely retired. They did some like episodes of TV and a few movies here and there. Um, one of them married like one of my biggest crushes from the Odies, which was uh, Allison Lohman. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah one yeah. of them. She's married to like one of them. And uh, yeah, they just kind of like fell back and kind of just huh, do some funny. things here and there. Yo, Nobleden took a couple years off, like you said, but he just did that uh, the Mel Gibson film last year, Panama, with, with Cole Hauser. I guess it was like a you know, uh, indie release sort of yeah. thing. So he's doing some yeah. action. Yeah, it just jumped into my mind because I was trying to think like who are some other like crazy directors that we've covered over the yeah. years. And Neville Dean like, did like the Vatican tapes in Panama, yeah. like uh, Rob just said. Oh so, man! Like yeah, I'll just I'll never forget when we were in oh, He's the one. Neville Dean is the one who married Allison Lohman. Okay. Yeah. I'll never forget when we were at Comic-Con and we saw the footage of Spirit of Vengeance where he was like pissing fire and stuff. And we were totally. like, they might have finally got it right. And then that movie came out and we were like, oh. Yeah. I never said that. I no, never no, no. said that. I think, it was, I think it was whoever was in the room. I, I was in the panel and, and it wasn't the footage they showed us so much. They did show like the fire piss <laughs> thing and like the, the bike transformation, right? Which is the big thing yeah. we wanted to see. No, but the actual, the the crux of that whole panel was like, all behind the scenes stuff like how we shot it and it was like neville dean like on his roller skates chained to the back of a car holding yeah, the camera exactly, down the yeah, side yeah. of a cliff yeah, and it's yeah. like holy shit like the idea was like they are also the dps cinematographers up close and in the action and like yeah. that was kind of the selling point it's like it's practical action all shot in frame blah 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 so um yeah but yeah i mean they stopped making movies after that pretty much so yeah that's how it went yeah. it looks uh, like that was it yeah <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, any other things you guys kind of want to shout out really quick? I saw Prey. Um, I, you know, I alluded to that earlier. You guys were high Man. on everybody's been talking about it online. Um, God, well, half the thing was doing people doing the XC in the early ODs. These two were on the meth circuit because, yeah, they made Crank, Crank High <laughs> Voltage, Gamer, Jonah Hex, and Spirit of it. Yeah, that if you've ever had reasons to get out of the movie biz, let yeah. me give you five, and it's not yeah. dialogue. It's Crank. <laughs> Crank High Voltage, Gamer, Jonah Hex, and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. That's just L, 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 L. Let's get out. Yeah. yeah I like Crank. One. I liked the original Crank. The first Crank was pretty good. It's all, right. all crazy. Crank 2 is too much. Yeah, yeah Crank 2 is. is yeah. it, which one is one where he's banging? What's her name from? Uh, is that um, both? Road trip. It's, yeah, it's like it's in both. the middle to survive. Like smart. Like, yes, Amy Smart was, to like survive in public. It was Jesus. the first. It was the first one. Um, where yeah, that was Neville Dean and Taylor in like in like a nutshell, yeah. right there. Yeah, it's true. It is yep. true. Um, well, I so mean, yeah, so I thought Frank for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I saw uh, Prey. Really dug it. Um, everything you guys said about it was accurate. I uh, I really enjoyed it. I actually ended up watching 
Um, the one that was like dubbed in Comanche or whatever. Yeah, um, I'm going in for that too. I want to see that so yeah. bad. I thought I thought it was quite it was quite cool. Um, and just just yeah, I mean, beautifully shot film. It really is. You know, I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to like say much more than you guys said um, the other day, but, but yeah, I mean, it really is, it really is cool to see, you know, to see Danny kind of like taking these things and, and making something cool of it because that was definitely one of the more unique, you know, I don't know, like kind of alien predator type movies that we've gotten in, you know, two decades now. Um, Like I, uh, I definitely really, really dug it and just great acting beautiful cinematography and by the end of it you know kind of the way that it all comes together at the end and and she sort of manages to take on on the predator like sort of drew from all of these different sort of pieces and observations that she made throughout the movie and i thought that was like that was really cool um especially since it kind of set her up to be this like you know underdog but also like she's good at certain things like being a tracker and and stuff like that it proves she pays attention she's observant and she's um, you know, she puts all that to, to sort of work at the end, but man, really, really, really cool. And really sort of surprised by how much I like kind of fell in love with, with the characters, especially her and her brother in that movie, mm-hmm. like their relationship is really, really great. And, um, just really badass characters, like watching them, watching them take on this version of the predator. And so like that, I'm, I'm like the last person to be the biggest proponent. I mean, I love dogs, but I'm not like a rah, rah cheerleader, but this dog had the whole situation. The predator came to earth, but the real, <laughs> A real fucking top alpha was that dog. That dog yeah, knew when to be out, when to come yeah. back, when to be like, yeah. yeah, this shit's getting hairy. I'm out. Like bears yeah. and predators. Yeah, I'm out. And like, totally you true. know, that dog was on top of shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> that dog, I'm, I was quite impressed. I actually like, Ashley and I were watching it together and I was actually just like quite amazed at just like the animal acting in this movie, um, like with the dog and as in particular the dog, but I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me when you have characters like that, that are, you know, you have a dog that's like in the movie interacting with people and isn't like distracting, you know, and actually like becomes something that feels like her and this dog have this like legitimate kind of shorthand with each other. And, but it's, it's its own agent. It's not like she's commanding the dog. No, that's not Lassie. That dog is like, he's a Comanche dog. Yeah. He's like, he's like, you better be able to keep up or I'm out. (laughs) Like, yeah. Shit, that bear's catching up. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. Exactly. Like it just it seemed like such an authentic, you know, character, but also like a character that contributes like meaningful and cool, cool things throughout it. Um and some of the I there were some unexpected kind of like connections to like the modern day predator movies that I thought were just fun Easter eggs that um that I was surprised by and and thought were, you know, kind of cool little nods but i was gonna mention that and i didn't mention it last time i didn't even notice it the first time even though it's so obvious but you're talking about the yeah. flintlock pistol at the end yeah 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 exactly which is the same one from the end of predator 2 it blew yeah. my mind after the fact yeah that I realized I, oh that. man i just realized that today is that a real and i didn't know if i was crazy is that the same one that's the same one and dude one. in the comics they actually gave a story to the pirate crew that dealt with the, a different predator in a different time period and like for killing his crew the pirate captain like gave this gun to the predator and that's why it was like they're in canon but it's not canonical now uh yeah. reason for why he has that gun and gave it to i guess danny glover at the end of um yeah and now it's sort of imply that it's like this you know it goes passed down as part of what killed the first predator so now if there's a sequel like some predator has to get that gun back or so yeah, uh, yeah that's not good for her yeah no no it's not <laughs> 
Yeah. Or it could be that could be the thing we pass down to the next generation or a different group of people uh, in the future. No, it's fun part. Let's see if our site has actually covered something like this. I think like the uh <laughs> I'm sure you're I'm sure comic book covered that. Yeah. It feels like the kind of thing. We do we do almost too much stuff. There's a lot of stuff out here I never know. I mean that's that's straight out of our old playbook. It's of, definitely like, up on screenran.com if anyone's yeah. out there curious. Uh I, I'm convinced though, like this is the way to do freaking alien movies and, and like predator movies now is just like stick them in a weird time period. Like forget all this shit. We're like trying to tie it all together. Oh, four days ago we were on it. Uh, I can hang my head high. I can still hang my head high. All right. Show me an alien movie that takes place in like fucking, you know, I don't know, like medieval times or something. Like I, like I'm ready for, I'm like ready for this, like, you know, these different eras where interacting with these like sci-fi horror monsters and stuff. Like, I, I mean, if it's that in canon, my man, those xenomorphs aren't created till I don't know when. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean. All the alien yeah. covenant, whatever, Prometheus stuff. Which is your favorite movie I hear, Ben? Prometheus, right? Uh, yeah, God. How do you, you guys, guys like the post-credits scene? Yeah, the, uh, like with the little animated thing you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah tracked that was a, what a fucking what a fucking asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you just like here's your post credit scene. Here's how much we're investing in a post credit scene. Here's a little kid's drawing at the end. Yeah. It's like yeah. oh yeah. this will get the internet on fire, which you know yeah. we reported on on uh, comicbook.com yeah. and screenrant.com, I'm sure it did too. Yeah. yeah. So, it's cool though. You know, I really touche. Uh, touche. I if you've been looking for a reason to, to subscribe to Hulu, if your cable company isn't giving you free Hulu or something like that, um, this is a good this is a good reason to at least. You know, so yeah, I gotta trust myself. I thought that fucking pistol was the same one, and I love. Oh, Predator for sure. Well, they flash the name, right? Like the name. Yes, what is I mean, like, whenever they show you, if it wasn't connected. You'd be like, "Why the fuck are they showing us?" Yeah, I just exactly. didn't even think about it at the time. I was so invested in the other part of it. You know what I mean? So yeah, but yeah, it was a. It's cool though. I mean, that's a cool little that's a cool little tie-in, especially because that pistol scene in Predator Two just makes no fucking sense. Like, I mean, that scene, dude. That was like I just wrote a thing about ranking all the Predator movies, uh, including the AVP ones. Some people are just going for the five Predator movies. Yeah, that's some that's some basic work. You can do it. Do it all. (laughs) Come on, come on, man. Come on, man! Yeah. And it's an easy ranking. That alien me. by the tail and like whips him around in Alien versus Predator. Like you got to go all the way. Uh, yeah, I think it's an easy one for me. I think it's. Uh, let's see, what did I say? Uh, so at the top of my head, I said AVP Requiem is the low, is low, and always will be. Yeah, I mean that's the trash. Um, yeah. The Predator's next because that's just forgettable as all hell. And it's Shane Black, I yeah. expected better from you. Well, yeah, um, and all the bullshit that like went along with that. The way like now here's where it gets controversial. Around. I think I put I can't remember which order I put it in because I kept flip flopping. But right now I'm gonna say I put Predators then AVP. I think I like AVP over Predators. Um, just because AVP yeah. had Sinai Lathan in that labyrinth temple place, the training ground was cool as shit. Um, yeah, even cool. before it, and then you know they just had some fights in the fight at the end. I like. Um, Predators was good too, but like all those human, they take some great actors. I mean, Mahershala Ali, they make an African warlord stereotype and he's like a Oscar winning actor. So, you know, and Adrian Brody as a leading man, action hero. We never bought that. We all talked about how we were never, ever fucking buying that. And we never did. So I'm proud of us um, because that faded quickly. Thank God. Um, You're right. So, 
Um, the coolest thing about that was like Alex Braga, who was like a badass and Topher Grace unexpectedly. But um, yeah. so I think I had that, app, but I think I have it uh, Predators, then AVP, then Predator 2, Prey, and the original. Yeah. That's, that's easy. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would put it, I would probably, the only thing I might flip there is Predators and AVP. But I'm I don't know. Sure I, I haven't seen real about my order. <laughs> I don't. I just can't remember Alien versus Predator enough to like remember. I remember it not being like a very good movie, but I remember enjoying it. Does Does Predators okay. have Lawrence Fishburne like in the? Yeah, that's the big yeah. twist of oh, yeah. the middle. Yeah, that and, shit. I didn't like that. So like that uh, with, with AVP, the thing I remember most. Oh, sorry, man. Go ahead. And then I was just say like, yeah, there's a lot of things about Predators that are forgettable. Yeah, there's a lot of like dumb scenes that really bother me. But the the thing, I mean, it, oh, AP. but it has that. Oh, Predators! I forgot has that. Oh my God! It would never be able to be made now. That horrible Walton Goggins monologue in it when he plays. Oh, yeah. yeah, when he's just. Oh, I'm not even going to repeat it. I'm not yeah. even getting canceled. Yeah, but he just says it in less less uh, sophisticated way that as soon as he gets back to Earth, all he's going to do is like violate women on the hour on the hourly. Oh, God, poor Walter. Cause his, yeah, because his character was like a murder r- rapist or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, get that shit out of here. No one needs that. Yeah. So like, um, yeah, well, that was the that whole, whole thing with that movie, right? Is it was just a bunch of like like terrible people that basically yeah. had to take it on. Right? They were all like like fucked up in one way or another, if I remember. Correctly. But it's supposed to be different kinds of warriors, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the best guy, but that's what I'm saying, but like that's I had Mahersha Ali spouting like fake Nigerian accents and carrying a machete, and I was like, oh man, that's <laughs> yeah. not good. You're right, yeah, but, uh, Death Squad soldier from Sierra Leone, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so. yeah, so, but uh, the best guy in that whole thing was uh, the Arnie clone, and you just wanted him to die because he was an Arnie clone. The <laughs> Russian spitting ass guy. Oh I yeah. About that. yeah, I should rewatch yeah, that sometimes. Most of the shit. No, I I've rewatched it. It's but it's fun. Like AVP and that are fun. They're both fun watches, but they're both kind of non-starters for nasty. like franchise reboots because you're just That's like, it. yeah, these are with these are not good. With enough. AVP, man, like I remember seeing that one in theaters, and like I was so it's probably still one of my most memorable like sequences of like the whole franchise. But like that shit at the beginning where they're like talking about the ruins. Um, and it's like they say something like, "Oh, it's a mix of Aztec and Mayan and this," and I'm like, "Oh shit, this lore is awesome." Then it all kind of falls apart once they start like sharing weapons and teaming up and stuff like that. But uh, the concept of that, I was so into. Oh man, I still. But I, I think I think black people have a special love for AVP because seeing Sanai Lathan, who's like, you know, so goddamn beautiful, and just her being like going full Ripley. She's the most convincing Ripley I've seen since Ripley. So, you know, yeah. I love yeah. her putting a scar on her face. Like, I was like, that's hard as nails. Like, let's go. <laughs> like, who else? Like, who else in the Predator franchise is like, yeah, I'm going to scar my face and I'm going to kill this fucking alien. Like, come yeah. on. That was, that was great. I love it. I love I still love ABP just from some of the shots. Like, when the alien whips its tail with the acid at the screen. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or when a Predator thinks he's won and that alien gets the best of him still. Like, there's just. Yeah. Just and I love again the temple was so fucked up, like as the yes. shifting temple that scared me more than anything. It's just being in that temple that like people get crushed in those passageways in the beginning, and I was like, What the fuck? or end up in a face grabber thing. And this the is our unlock get to that chest, and, like unlock the yeah. Now they can, yeah, that was like a good twist. Like, there was yeah. a good, there's good. I like the story of AVP, weirdly. It's not enough, cool. Paul. Yeah. 
Paul W.S. Anderson, like, yeah, man, just weirdly enough. But uh, yeah. this has been uh, the Podcast X AVP Appreciation Post. Uh, thank you yeah. for coming in. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, I did not know how we got here. Yeah, but uh, no, Prey, Prey, yeah, no, Prey was really good. And Amber, Mib, Thunder, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she was awesome in Legion, but like now, like, yeah, she went hard in this movie and it was, and it was worth it. Yeah. yeah, she was just great. I mean, like, like I said, I listened to the Comanche dub too, right? So like, I'm not even listening to these people like acting in English and everything. And it's just like the emotion and everything, even when I couldn't, because some of the actual dub isn't subtitled too. So like the subtitles of the Comanche dub are like not in English. It's like things that you're not like the French soldiers, the French trappers and stuff like that. Like some of that, at least in, you know, the version that I was watching, like wasn't dubbed. So you like, because she doesn't understand what they're saying and stuff, you know? So like the, her ability to kind of like emote and stuff in situations where like I was listening to another language, but I was able to really capture like, you know, exactly what I was saying and like sense of humors. And when she was like, you know, teasing somebody or like kind of bantering with her brother and stuff, just really, really, really strong. Um, I'm really excited to see more of what, what she gets to do after this, because I think, you know, she's been in a lot of stuff, but this feels like the kind of thing that, you know, gets you cast in, uh, in some big things going forward. Um, but yeah, yeah. uh, I definitely want to watch you the, know. I want to watch the dub version. Cause I think Kofi and I both probably watched the screener version. Yeah. Which, yeah. Like, for me, it had my yeah. giant email splattered across the screen the whole time. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I need to see it without my email. I said, that's the first thing I said to my, I'm watching with my wife for my birthday tomorrow. Um, but I was like, that's the first thing I was like, she was like, you want to watch it again? I was like, yeah, I always prefer to see movies without my name, like scribbled across them. It, and like 720 P or whatever resolution yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes me just want to hate my, like hate myself. Cause I'm just like, dude, get your fucking name out of my face. Like, I just want to watch this thing, but it's me. Dude, I don't know if you tried this. Like Disney screeners are like a pain in the ass to deal with, but like this, oh, yeah. I actually did the whole app thing for the TV. I'm like, I'm gonna watch this in the big screen, but in the big screen, the email is not transparent. So it's like a block of white text and all these night sequences. And I'm like, I can't do this. So I went back to my lap to finish the back half oh, of the man. movie. Yeah, that sounds Yeah, I have a whole multi-screen like monitor set up here, so I just like kick back sometimes in theater mode and just put it. Oh, up. smart! And smart. I have it right by my couches upstairs. And like, yeah, I can't believe that you guys didn't think that scene where she faces off against the mountain lion in the tree, and you have like the profile shot of them shot in moonlight wasn't enhanced by having your names bouncing around the screen behind her. Oh, it made it harder to see, man. The contrast. <laughs> Oh my god! All I know is uh, the real star of that film is Hatchet on a String. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so great. Where they like make fun of her for that too, and then she just like makes such good use of that. That scene yeah, is badass when she's going between the two trees, like practicing. Yeah. 100%. I was like, oh shit! Yeah. I need a hatchet yeah. on a string. Yeah, that's pretty dope. <laughs> Um, anything else you guys want to mention really quick? I said one of these days I'm going to force us to do a Why for All Mankind is the Best Show You're Not Watching podcast. Um, the season finale of that is this week. Um, I'm really excited about that. There was an amazing twist that a lot of people, a few people had actually kind of called um, earlier in the season in speculation and everything that turned out to be true that seemed like kind of a Hail Mary that made for a really, really cool moment. No hints. An ultimate episode. So... Um, I do want to talk about For All Mankind at some point, so maybe Rob and I can talk a little bit about it once Rob's finished the finale. Um, but uh, but I haven't watched much else other than other than that. I finished Resident Evil, which I you know is kind of a mess, but I, I sort of enjoyed how zany and over the top that sort of retelling is. So 
Oh man, uh, you want to get into that? I loved it. I loved that Resident Evil show. Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. Yeah. It was <clears> just made good. me interested in Resident Evil, which is not something I can say for a lot yeah. of years. And I liked the family drama at the heart of it and yeah. jumping kind of lost style between two time periods. Yeah. I thought that all actually worked pretty effectively. And there's some like, you know, there's some fun like CGI monsters in it. And it does a good job of kind of like winking at the mythology without being like, okay, now we need to cast an actor to play Leon and have him show up here or something. It's like they have this weird take on Wesker, which actually kind of gets explained. Yeah, um, that was great. Which was a great twist. And yeah, there's some there's some genuine. Lance Reddick, man. Lance Reddick is just that movie is made. Uh, that whole series is made because they got Lance Reddick to do so much. Totally. Um, yeah. But um, no, who also is really good in that, and I've never seen her play like in a villain role is Paola Nunez, who uh, oh yeah, is, yeah, yeah Evelyn or whatever. Yeah, so good yeah. in a villain role. And listen, yeah. I, we were out of touch in the years, but I predicted the rise of two Latin women taking supremacy over the world, and it was. Uh, Back in about 2017, 2018, I predicted this. And it was Paola Nunez and uh, a girl nobody had ever heard of and still hasn't really, though, uh, named Anna de Armas. And I was like, <laughs> these two Latin women are going to fucking conquer the world. And I was watching like The Purge uh, TV series and War Dogs. And I was like, yeah, these two yeah. girls are going to take it over. And they've been doing good. I mean, Paola Nunez was in Bad Boys 3. Now she's in the Resident yeah. Evil. And then the Armas, well, we all know what she's doing, which is everything. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Paola, yeah, Paola Nunez, was, that Evelyn character is great. And especially like where it ends up by the end of the later timeline, like where she's at and stuff is so twisted and so just like fucked up that. Yeah. Her acting um, that like one of those last scenes is so fucked up. Yeah, totally. I like, I know there are people that were like complaining about this show for how weird it is, but it's like, there's nothing weirder as like in, there are weirder things in the main resident evil game franchise than anything that's in this series. As far as I'm concerned. And I I really did dig how it kind of, references the past but also kind of carves this new future and stuff i thought it was good i enjoyed it and i think there's a thin and i think there's a thin line between weird and novel like it it was just it kept me guessing like you said but there's like things like there's a scene with a woman where the main characters goes to see ends up in this apartment where she's on the run with this woman right and it's like such a and it's such a resident evil thing but like yeah if right at home in resident evil or even the walking dead or zombie thing but like still was uniquely weird to this series and i was like oh well like i don't mind this but uh yeah, yeah. it was it was kind of cool yeah that straight up that scene straight up like out walking dead's the walking dead in terms of just like kind of a little short story like setup yeah that that has like a really like f- like fucked up situation behind it um yeah i I dug it. You know, it's weird. And there's definitely melodramatic stuff. And some of the acting is questionable from some of the people. But but I, I thought it was good. Um, I'm, I want to see a season two. I think, you know, where it sort of leaves off is cool. Um, but but yeah, so I was wrapping that up. That's what kind of kept me from from the Sandman. But I'm going to I'm going to get I'm going to get into that some. Anything else you guys have been watching that you want to like talk about really quick? Uh, you guys have mostly covered everything. I think that's the oh, only thing I actually man. watched last oh, week. God, I watched. One, one thing I can't talk about for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> nice flex. Um, yeah, I, uh, I bet you've seen it too. I don't know. Uh, 
Oh no! I mean, if it's any of that franchise stuff, that's a whole, that's a whole other side. No, I haven't seen some of the upcoming stuff that's coming. We got a whole. Our team is very extensive, and yeah. Anyway, um, I guess I would say uh, Westworld is still doing very uh, yeah. well. Beavis and Butthead is back, and I've really enjoyed that. Those first episodes that Mike Judge put out of Beavis and Butthead have been were really funny. Um, so that's on Paramount Plus is along with me. So check out Beavis and Butthead. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that's wa- it. I need me. to watch that after your yeah after your recommendation. I've been watching Westworld and really digging this season. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm curious how they're going to wrap all that up because the last episode was <laughs> freaking crazy as far as kind of like closing off some storylines and stuff. But, um, I need to watch Beavis and Butthead though, because you're telling me that they were like watching like TikTok and stuff like that is, has sold. Oh, me it's hilarious. That I would oh, it's enjoy, hilarious. So. Yeah. I thought there was something about, um, oh, what's it called where it's like, I'm just like spacing it, but like. We're like really quiet noise, like quiet talking to help people relax. What's that called? ASMR. A- oh, yeah. They do an yeah, SMR. Yeah. ASMR. Yeah. yeah. They do a thing about that in the first two episodes. Yeah, the first episode, yeah. the premiere episode, was what they showed at Comic Con. It's, it's Beavis, Beavis finally meeting fire, and it's just, it's fucking <laughs> hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. I have to check that out. Uh, all right. Well, Rob, any last thing you want to shout out really quick before we do go, jump off? Uh, no, we can sign out here. All right. Okay, well, that'll do it for this week's episode. Um, you know, not a lot of bangers this week for us to talk about, but a fun conversation nonetheless. We will be back next week. In the meantime, I am Ben Kendrick. You can follow me at Ben Kendrick on Twitter. Check out what I'm doing over at Rise at 7, Mr. Rob Keys. You can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore Keys. That's K-E-Y-E-S. And check out our work on Screaming CBR, and Collider. And Kofi Outlaw. I am blogger of the internet endless. Now, um, I'm Kofi Outlaw. You can find my work over at comicbook.com. I'm the host of Comic Book Nation, the only podcast doing it for all things geek culture. We know a lot about a lot. Probably more than these guys. You guys know about Talk to me about Goku. Talk to me about Goku right now. We know about a lot about it. Your Summer Summer Slam. Talk to me about Goku. And then do you feel like Gohan is now more overpowered than Goku? Then I want to hear your Summer Slam recap. No, I'm just kidding. That's a bad promo. We're getting lost. Um, Yeah, so I'm doing a uh, Comic Book Nation podcast. I'm over at Comic Book. You can find me at Kofi Outlaw. And you can always find me kind of guest appearing just to drop by and sleep on the couch here at Podcast X. And happy birthday to you, buddy. Have a great oh, uh, yeah, day. Enjoy praise. Um, oh, shit. It's about three minutes uh, East Coast time away. Yeah. yeah we're getting yeah, into my birthday. I promise this yeah. would not be a sober podcast, and I have delivered. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, man, a man of his word. All right, guys. Well, that will do it. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Uh, we will see you all next week. <laughs>